uh, it's kind of hard to um, be on social media and not have heard the, the name of Greta Thunberg. A uh, 15-year-old Swedish girl, climate activist, um, and she's kind of been in the spotlight. A little, maybe not as much here lately as she was uh, about a month ago. She's kind of like a firebrand, depending on which side of this climate change business you're on. She's either a very passionate voice of a young woman that everybody should listen to, or somebody says, no, she's uh, too naive to be taken seriously. However, you know, and people fall on both sides, and they fall on both sides with passion. It's amazing towards this, this young girl. And the truth is, uh, it's really not a whole necessarily relevant to the gospel, that, that whole message. I, get, I like breathing good air, so that part, I'm on her side. I've been to cities where my tonsils said, why are we here? We need to leave. I mean, it took me two years to adjust to the pollution in Rio de Janeiro before finally the tonsils said, okay, well, this is what we got, this is what we got. And if you've been to some major cities, I mean, it's bad. And so, you know, I have nothing against, you know, trying to clean up our planet and all that. Uh, and that's not what I'm talking about. Couldn't, you know, I'm not going to say I couldn't care less. But this morning, I can't care less. I have another reason for bringing her name up. Because this girl's name brings up a topic because of some of the things that she says. And the question is, do you have a purpose that transcends life? And, and she kind of has latched on to this idea of climate change, and that's her whole world. And the quote that really caught my attention, above and beyond anything else, was this one right here. She's, this is one of the things she said in one of her speeches. This Again, a 15-year-old girl, so let's give her a break. But she says, before I started school striking, you know what school striking is? I tried that when I was a kid. My parents really didn't appreciate it. Then uh, she stopped going to school because she has a higher purpose, you know. So before I started school striking, I had no energy, no friends, and I didn't speak to anyone. I just sat alone at home with an eating disorder. All that is gone now since I have found meaning in a world that sometimes seems meaningless to so many people. That's a quote from one of her speeches she had. And just reading that in one hand, the first thing I think you should think of is this young girl, like a whole lot of people in our world, kind of needs our prayers. And I don't want to diminish her work that she's trying to do. And, you know, she's very heartfelt, you know, whether, again, we're not on that topic today. Please, I hope that's not the lesson you walk away with today, that Mark wanted to talk about climate change. But her value of her own life doesn't come from who she is. It comes from what she does. And that's what you see in that quote right there. Without this newfound mission in life, she had a meaningless, worthless life. If global warming were something that were resolved instantly, or maybe somebody convinced her it's really not an issue, then all of a sudden would she go back to sitting at home, sitting alone, no energy, no friends, with an eating disorder. You know, like I said, I admire this girl's seeking to have a purpose for her life. And I pity her and the vast majority of people for not realizing that there is a higher purpose in life that transcends all of life. At least she sought to look for meaning, and I'll give her credit for that, because a lot of people, they've never even given it a thought. Their life has no purpose, has no meaning, not even in what they're doing. They're just kind of going through, and each day the sun comes up, and if they're alive the next morning, they'll start all over again. Consider our lives and our purpose and our meaning as Christians. Are our goals 
even as noble as what this girl's goals are. Because sometimes, what is our goal for life? How do we define that victory that we gain? Sometimes it's having a good job. You know, when guys get together, what's the first question? It, it kind of depends on the age group, too. If you're in your teens, you know, in, in, I don't know what, it's been too long. We don't ask questions. We just show up and say, hey, you know. So, you know, that's all you have to say. But when you, and when you get to my age, you know, we discuss aches and pains. But somewhere between 30 and about 50-something, when guys get together, what do they say? First thing, what do you do for a living? Because that's how we define where we're at on the pecking order. Who's gaining the victory and who's, getting, who's losing it? Our goals aren't that, much, aren't that noble compared to this Greta. A good job or maybe your goal is to keep physically fit. A lot of times, a lot of people, and it's not just women, but men too, their goal, their value, their victory is seen in the family. What happens when they move off to Arkansas and Tennessee? If that's your victory. Now we kept one captive. He's not allowed to leave. Sometimes it's how many friends you have. I think I've told you before about the young lady over, uh, over in Romania who has basically wrecked her advanced education because she's more concerned with how many likes she gets on social media than what her assignments are from her professors. How do you design victory? And what happens if the rug is pulled out from underneath you? What happens if all of a sudden that job that gave you so much self-worth is now gone? What would life be then? Would your life be a failure? What happens if your family falls apart or they just move away? What happens if all of a sudden your worth was in how physically fit you are and now all of a sudden you're a cripple? God's word tells us that we need to define what the prize is of life and what the victory is. God's word calls us to evaluate what it is that we value. Two passages that, uh, that stand out for me this morning that on this, and they both come from the Gospel of John. John's real good. You want to get the spiritual kind of stuff and not, you know, if you like the nuts and bolts, go to the Gospel of Mark. You know, he'll, he'll put a hammer in your hand or whatever and he'll get you busy. You go to John and John's going to take your life and break it down and say, here's what's really going on. And so the first passage that we'll consider is from John chapter 4, and this is the woman at the Samaritan well. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will, be, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But that water shall, that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The other passage I like to consider is John 10. 10. You all had, ought to have this memorized by now. I, I, I quote it so often. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Always remember when you're reading the Gospel of John, he's always digging a little deeper under the surface than what you would think. He evaluates life not on those, the way we do things. Poor Nicodemus, remember the born again passage? He had him so confused. Okay, I'm supposed to go back to my mother's womb? No. Your life as a whole must be born again. You know, look at John chapter 9. There's a blind guy, and then the apostles look at him, and they say, you know, explain this. Why is he blind? Is this his fault, his mother's fault, his daddy's fault? Instead, Jesus says no, so that the work of God might be displayed in him. You see a blind man. 
John sees, or Jesus sees, the power of God just about to explode right there on the front page. But when you're looking at John chapter 4, it's a woman of a scandal. You know the story. It's a Samaritan woman. We go into a lot of detail. We won't go into all those details this morning. I won't say what she is. We're in church. But she's had five husbands. And now she's shacking up with somebody else who hasn't even bothered to make her a wife. She's living a desperate life. Her sins aren't really what define her as much as her desperation for life seems to define her. Trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose. It's not just the sin of, of the, you know, the, that she's committing, you know, the sexual sin that she's... So Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. There's a well right there. Now, that's the best picture I can get that in my mind might look like the well of the first century of Palestine. <coughs> but there's a well right there of water. And he's wanting water and she started giving him a hard time about it. Remember that? And then he comes up with this here. He says, well, if you'd asked me, I would have given you water. And she goes, you don't have anything to draw water from. How are you going to do that? So he defines water from God. And so I don't even think when he was talking about it, he's, he's not talking about the water of the well that she could give him. I think what Jesus is doing is comparing her desperate life to what life could be. She's thirsty. Not just because there's water in the ground. Her life is thirsty. And she has gone to the wrong wells repeatedly to find that solution. Hope, though, is found in God. We are created in his image, and God says, come home. God says that you need to understand what your life is really all about. I don't care if we're talking about your marriage, your health, your education, your job, your friends, your family. They are all futile, dead ends, worthless, if God is not the victory. If God is not the center of your hope. So Paul writes to the Philippians and says, The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're like me, you know, I've been raised in the church. I'm, well, I'm a little afraid of going to hell. That's why I come to church, kind of. That's kind of why I'm hoping for the other plan. I want, want to go to heaven. I choose the hope of heaven because I don't want to go to hell. Here's the issue. Now, that might have shocked a few of you. Are preachers afraid of going to hell? Well, let's take it a little further. I think some of you are afraid of going to heaven. I think this room is full of, full of people who are afraid of dying and going to heaven. Why? Because we bask in the blessings of earth more than the glory and the blessings of God. Some people are afraid of going to heaven. Jesus said to her, he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is drink of this life, of this purpose, of this way, of this victory now, and enjoy both now and forever. And the question you have to ask yourself when we look at this woman at the well is, is he describing your faith and what he tells her? Or are you still trying to find 
a way to quench your thirst from the wrong wells. Jesus is telling this woman that the joy of life is not found in this world, not even in five men. The waters of this world, the promises of this world, they fail. But the will and the word of God give victory. Then you go over to John chapter 10, and Jesus is out in public speaking at this time. And, and in the, the short verse, he describes what are the promises of this life, and what are the promises of life with God. The analogy he uses is sheep and shepherds. So confined by our past, I guess, we, we've heard this less than a thousand times. So when we hear this, we only think of two things. We think of religion and false teachers. And that's all, the only thing we come to. We're way too narrow in understanding what Jesus is saying in John 10. We want to talk about denominationalism. We want to talk about false religions. We want to talk about bad preaching. Jesus doesn't say that. Go back and read it. That's our interpretation. Instead, Jesus says in this life, there is a plethora. I don't know if he knew that word or not. I'm sure he did. But there is a plethora of bad choices in life. <coughs> but he, on the other hand, there's one good choice, and that's the great shepherd. That's him. In other words, any path you choose that is not guided by Jesus is failure. And it's destruction. And we agree with this. Because like I said, we'll all agree that the false teachers, they're going to take you to the wrong direction. I think sometimes we forget how many false teachers we have that never darken the doors of a church at all. They're seen more on social media and television and in our music than anywhere else. We agree that breaking the Ten Commandments is bad. It's a sentence of death. But Jesus goes further than that. He says any path that is not guided by God's will and by the hope of Christ is destruction. And that's so easy for us to say, but I'm a Christian, so this message must be for someone else. The problem is we have to look at our lives and see daily, who are we listening to? Which are the shepherds that guide our lives? The thief comes only to kill, to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And here's a newsflash. And you'll see this throughout the gospel. Part-time obedience is not hope. Part-time obedience is not faith. What do I mean by part-time? Well, on Sundays you come to church and say hallelujah, on Tuesdays you're drunk. Well, obviously that's a serious issue. But that's not the point. The American Christianity that exists today, I don't think is very biblical. And I don't care what shingle they hang outside their building. Because we tend to believe in a Christianity today that says you can have it all here and now. And one day when it's all over, when you finally, you know, you just can't hang around here any longer. You can gain the whole world, but then at the end you get to keep Jesus. And he's there in your back pocket for that time of crisis. So you can go and enjoy the same beyond here. So here's what Jesus says about part-time believers. <clears throat> If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wishes to, have to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now this passage alone opens up for all kinds of debates and all kinds of thoughts. Jesus is not telling us here that this is a call for everybody to have absolute poverty. You don't see that in scripture. Matter of fact, you read in Philippians chapter 4 verse 12, Paul says, I can do fine either direction. If I'm very wealthy, I'm doing good. If I'm impoverished, I'm doing it. Because his value system didn't come from the money flow, did it? But Jesus is not telling us here to be, you know, impoverished. Neither is this calling for us to be like a monk that has celibacy and walks around in tattered robes. That's a man-made invention. Matter of fact, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul condemns people that would teach such a thing. But it is to prayerfully lift up your eyes to heaven. Kind of try to imagine Jesus looking back at you. Have a little bit of a Stephen moment there. And ask yourself, what is my life focused on that's above? And what is it that matters more about my life than anything that this world has to offer? Is it truly my walk with Christ? Does my walk with Christ determine every single aspect about my life? You know, we'll, we'll tell somebody that, you know, there are certain jobs a Christian you can't have. You know, if you, if you own the corner saloon, we might have a little difficulty, you know, telling you that that's okay for you to do. But at the same time, did you choose a path of career because you said, this is what's going to glorify God best? Did you choose a, a mate? Because this one's going to get me stronger in the will of God than anybody else. You use your spare time, say, how can I use my time now for God? Or is it only for yourself? The victory is with Christ. The victory is in the call of the gospel. What do we call ourselves? You know, what did the early church, you think, how did they refer to themselves when, when they talked about, you know, because what do we say today? We, we, Christianity, you know, we... It really kind of messes us up. If you really start digging into scriptures, you know, some of the preaching in the book of Acts and, and some of the teachings of Jesus and the book of Romans in particular, they keep calling us Israel there. Or, or you know, we're the, the kingdom of God. And, and we just like to say we're Christians. Of course, if you're a part of our fellowship, you'll say Church of Christ. Romans chapter 16, 16. We looked hard and long to find a passage where we could find something to write down on the shingle, the, the, you know, the the churches of Christ salute you. Now we've got that written in Romanian right there on the side of the building, right there in Patesh. But what did they say in the New Testament? What did they repeatedly say? Well, if you go to the book of Acts, here's what you're going to see a time and again and again. I don't necessarily expect you to read every one of these passages. But the first one here is Acts chapter 9. This is Paul persecuting the church. But Luke doesn't say they persecuted the church. He says anyone belonging to the way. Then later on, Paul himself is in Philippi, and there's a servant girl with a demon, and she keeps yelling out, these are the bond servants of the God most, high, God, most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Apollos, first time we meet him, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And Priscilla and Aquila talked to him more accurately about the way. In Ephesus, people were speaking evil of the way. 
Same chapter, there's, it says, no small disturbance concerning the way. Then later in chapter 24, when Paul is defending himself, he says that according to the way which they call, which they call a sect, do I serve the God of our fathers. And Felix, he wasn't any dummy when it came to knowing about what was going on in current events. He had a more exact knowledge about the way. You understand what they call themselves? And it's not whether we need to change the sign out front. That's not the issue. The issue is, is faith in Christ the way of your life? Kind of all started one time because Jesus was talking to Thomas. And he says to Thomas and all those around him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is God the core of your being? Is he all that really matters? Is the gospel message, the message of the cross, what guides you? You know, and it's easy to, describe, to read passages, and, and we do a lot of Old Testament studies sometimes. And it, it, I know it's kind of a difficult area of the Bible sometimes. But, you know, you get to some of these passages and you read them and you think, well, that was for then, that's really not for now. And this passage here in Isaiah chapter 30 is one of those passages like that. Because you read it and you say, well, at the time what they were doing is they were making alliances with other nations. They shouldn't have done that. They should have depended on God. But look at this verse and see if this does not apply to the way that we live our lives today in the 21st century. He says, woe to the rebellious children. That's, that's a strong word right there. You know, you have three children, and you have rebellious children. Children are your children. Rebellious children are their children, right? Mine and mine, they're a little ornery, but they're not rebellious. That's the other guy's children that are rebellious. You don't want to re and I don't want God to refer to me as his rebellious child. But he says, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine who make alliance and an alliance, but not by my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. And what he's saying there to the people of the days of Isaiah that I think applies to us today is when you make plans for your life, are they God-centered? Is he the one that takes first place? You know, maybe you've heard the story about the preacher from a small little humble country church and barely able to, you know, put gas in his car each week and elders from a large city church came and offered him a preaching job would quadruple his salary have a parsonage home for him and a car provided for him by the church and he says well let me pray about it and then after they left he says honey start, start packing because as soon as I'm done praying we're moving <laughs> do we make God the center of our prayers and our plans, and our life? Or do we just make alliances with the world? We make plans that God was never even in consideration when we made those plans. It's sort of like, you know, the, the Lord be with you wherever you go. Well, you better go where the Lord wants you to go. Don't go somewhere and then ask the Lord to catch up. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. Well, maybe I should question is, do you have a life that transcends all meaning and values of this world and everything this world has a promise? 
We need to embrace God's calling for our lives. We need to, to be a fellowship of people that we have one goal in life, and that's God's glory. And everything else flows from that center of our heart. Embrace your eternal calling. Embrace your God-given purpose here and now. Choose to cling to God regardless of whether that brings about something good or something difficult or ill. So finally he says, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And for you and I to be a part of the way, the abundant life, to have that water from which we'll never thirst. It's not a part-time job. Your faith is not a trailer that you hook onto the back of your wagon. He is the way. He is the center. When that becomes your resolve, things will change. I can't tell you exactly how for each one. It'll be different for each one. But when that is the center of who you are, your life will finally find a meaning and a victory that transcends anything in this world. Whatever you need us, we actually come now as we stand and sing. Lord, my spirit, Lord.